Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Welcome everyone to this episode of False Bottom Girls. I am Jen, that's Rachel. Let's get to it because she's going to cough. We are back and better than ever from that brief coughing fit here in the Southeast. <laughs> We're in the middle of what, at least in Atlanta, is lovingly called the pollening uh, uh, because there's so much pollen everywhere. But yes, we're in the middle of the pollening and there is pollen over everything and everywhere. True. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. But we are talking about our noses, which is related. So there's our segue. Um, today, today, for this episode, this is another sensory episode. Um, and I've been really excited about this. And Rachel has been gracious enough to um, indulge me in doing an episode on this because one of the things that I've been doing a lot of research on the past few months is how we perceive and what does that look like and how do our brains process this information. Um, so today we're going to be talking about some of that. Um, I don't know if you know this, Rachel, but I am not a neuroscientist. Oh, uh, you're not? So, no, I know. Uh. I know. It's a shock, but um, it's true. So a lot of my explanations are going to be a very layperson view of trying to interpret um, specifically people like Gordon Shepard, who wrote neurogastronomy. He also wrote neuroenology, which is uh, where I, a lot of my information, this was what kind of kicked it off and started me going down rabbit holes was um, neurogastronomy is a book that he wrote. He's a neuroscientist and it focuses on what is happening in our brains when we're eating, um, you know, how we're, we're seeing things and all of that. And I have particularly over the past three or four months, have read so many books on uh, like gastrophysics, neurogastronomy, and you know, all of those things where like, if your plate's red, you eat less and just all, all like all of those sorts of things, the way our brain interprets the signals that are being sent to us. But he did write neuroenology, which is entirely how the brain perceives wine. And I can't really think of a reason why most of the research he presented in this book wouldn't translate also to beer. Um, yeah. So in my layperson mind, I have made some of those transitions into beer for us. So that's really what we're going to be focusing on today. And also, you know, how our brains interpret things and then how, if you're listening to this and you're wanting to work on building your palate, you know, and increasing your descriptive vocabulary, some ways that you can do that and what that means. Because I found a lot of times that people think that things like sensory and palate training are like, these are these very rigorous, like very structured things. And really it's like, no, just like go smell spices in your cabinet. That's yeah. palate training. You know, eat three different kinds of oranges, palate yeah. training. Um, so it is really accessible. Um, which is why I like to talk about it. And then I also like to talk about things like this because when you learn some of these principles and you learn how our brains interpret things, it makes it much easier to understand that 
anyone and everyone can can train their palate and develop an expert like palate in you know in whatever and it doesn't just have to be beer it could be wine or coffee or chocolate or you can just you know learn how to be more mindful in what you're you're tasting and what you're experiencing which will lead to like presumably more enjoyment out of it so you know learning all of that i think also empowers people who are you know who are like i i would really like to do that but i don't have the palate or i'm not good at that it's like we've talked about that a lot on this podcast it's like not- saying i would really like to run but i'm not good at it well you just start off running walking. just a little bit walking exactly. yeah you just you just do baby steps right like you and- could do it Exactly. And what we've said before on, you know, on this podcast a lot is like, we started out someplace, I still have bad days, I still don't do great sometimes at, you know, at tasting beers or describing beers. And that's just part of the human experience. And this is definitely, I think, for me, also learning how our brains work and how doing things like smell training, palate training helps build your brain muscle. You know, again, it's just like, okay, I, I can do this because anyone can do this. And so. I think it's important to remember that it's trading. You have to keep exactly. doing it. You can't right. just do it once. Well, right. Exactly. So with that, let's start, let's begin at the beginning and it's a good place we'll, to begin. Yeah. Right. And we'll <laughs> lay some groundwork on just kind of on what we're talking about. So when we're talking about perception, you know, we have our basic senses. So that's vision, hearing, olfaction, gustation, and tactile touch. So vision is going to inform us about the surface appearance of an object. So the size, the shape, the color, that's what is happening when we're looking at something. Hearing is, you know, perceiving sounds by detecting vibrations through the ears. Olfaction is giving us information about volatile compounds. So olfaction is going to be our sense of smell. Gustation is going to give information on water soluble chemicals, which I think is a very like <laughs> way to say taste, right? Yeah. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. Um, And then tactile, our sense of touch is going to provide us information on the texture or feeling um, factors of a surface. And so all of those things come into play when we're drinking beer. And um, the first, the first one we'll talk about, because this is really the most kind of the biggest one in terms of palate training is aroma. So we've, we've talked about this before. Most of flavor or taste is actually aroma. And our sense of aroma ties directly into the most primitive parts of our brain. Um, So that ties our scent memories are tied to our limbic system. And I actually learned a really good, not an anagram acronym. Yeah. So this to demonstrate when because I think we're, and like, I know I can share off the top of my head, like two or three of these and Rachel, I'm sure you can too, of when you, there are certain smells that when you smell them, it immediately takes you back to a very specific point in time. Oh yeah. You're always going to remember 
that smell. And I think that's also probably why a lot of people have, um, most people have some sort of alcohol or maybe alcohol and food combination that they oh, yeah. can't do because of, <laughs> oh, yeah. let's say that because of maybe doing like too much. To 22, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you were real dumb <laughs> yeah. with it. And now like even like the smell of Jaeger, you're just like, yep, can't that's me, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> used to be a real big fan, real big brand ambassador. Used to be real big brand ambassador. But one day, one day I took my last shot and I was like, oh God, never again. Like I, I spit it right back. I don't think I threw up. I just like spit it right back out. Maybe I did throw it up because I think I took it, whatever. But I was like, never <laughs> effing again. Wait. And to this day, I have not. And if I see it, if I see it, it will make me like cringe, let alone smell it. Oh God, if I smell right. it, I'll definitely have that gut puke reaction. Yeah. Well, and this is this is not exactly what I'm I'm the acronym I'm going to talk about. But so when we were in Munich, um, Rachel and I both used to smoke cigarettes and we we don't anymore and haven't for a very long time. Yeah. But we were having a conversation because being in Europe, there's a higher population of smokers. Yeah. And particularly walking around on the street, there's a lot of people smoking. And we were having a conversation because I was like, you know, sometimes I can smell cigarette smoke and like it takes me right back to like the first cigarette of the day or something. You know, smokers, particularly past smokers, I think uh, there's a lot of like that first cigarette of the day or like the cigarette after dinner or, you know, like yeah. romanticize whatever cigarettes kind of thing. The best cigarette like, of your time, daily right, routine. At right, the time. exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I was like, sometimes I can smell it and I'm just like, oh man, cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> and then most of the time though, I smell it and I'm just like, first of all, how are you still smoking cigarettes? Yeah. Why are you still doing this? Particularly when I see people younger than me, I'm like, look, it was in my, like my lifetime when they were like, oh, actually they are bad. Like they're bad all the time. And we've always done that. So I don't understand why people smoke now. Yeah. But especially when you go to Europe, it's just so like, they don't give a fuck. Right. Which is, we were having this conversation and Rachel was just like, not me. It just makes me sick. It just makes me sick. And she actually starts like kind of like gagging and she was like we have to stop talking (laughs) right now i will throw up (laughs) i will say that is the first time from just talking about it that i needed to stop (laughs) i will do that with shots though like getting not a shot of liquid but like a shot in the arm like getting a shot Mm -hmm. oh like talking about it right now it just makes my arm sore i want to rub it like just talking about that shot and i'm just like stop talking about the shot stop talking about the shot And, and you're you're so right too. Like I am the worst ex-cigarette smoker, and I think it's like a stereotype. But I I am awful. Like I don't fucking want to. I, I hate it. I, I can't be near it at all. My sister still smokes and smokes in her car and in their. I don't think they smoke in their condo, but it doesn't matter. Like it smells like that, mm-hmm. and I I can't even go in there. Like, I'm sorry, I will not ride in your car. I can't go in there. Right. Like, I, I can't. <laughs> it is, oh, God. Anyways, let's move on because my arm hurts and now I yes. throw up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we're talking about, not these memories, these are all fairly recent, but when we're talking about those oh, memories, yeah. they're known 
as, and I've, I've seen them called a couple of different things, uh, either episodic memories or the one that resonates the most with me, autobiographical memories. So these are smells that are like deeply entwined with, yeah. with your childhood, with your life. Yep. And this acronym is known as olfactory lover. And so the L is limbic system. So that is, a, those memories are stored in a different part of your brain. Um, those scent memories specifically are stored in a different part of your brain than your regular memories. Um, and also stored in a different part of your brain than like where your sight gets interpreted, where you yeah. know. So it's completely part of your limbic system. So that's L. O is old. And that means that it's an old memory. For most people, it stems from like the first years of your life. Um, so first years being like uh, preteen okay. earlier and even like really even earlier yeah. than that. So maybe like seven and younger or like yeah. eight and younger. So that's old, or that's O. V is vivid. So it's very elaborate. It's very full of details. Yep. E is emotional. So it's often very pleasant and often very nostalgic and r is rare so it's you don't have them very often you don't smell those smells yeah very often and one i have that i can tie directly to beer and this is an example a good example of palate training for a while in my beer judging i, I almost said career i don't really think it's a career but my beer judging hobby I would smell beers and the very first thought that popped in my head was perm solution. And in my mind, like I would smell this beer and I would immediately be back in the town I grew up in that had one beauty salon. And it was like my mom's hairstylist, his name was Eddie. And I was laying, I was getting a perm and like laying on the sink if you've ever had a perm have you ever had a perm uh I, my hair is naturally curly okay my this hair was hair not natural no my hair was not naturally <laughs> was like curly actually until later in like in oh, okay i was like wait so is back, yeah. my hair used to be very straight naturally i just um, straightened my so I, I got perms and not like not good perms. and i also no hell no like okay. even if i <laughs> like no that's not um, me but yeah, so you have the, these hard curlers all in your hair yeah, and like small hard curlers and then like the perm solution. And then you also had to, you know, the sinks at a hair salon that have kind of like the little dip that still like, it doesn't make it more comfortable. It's still uncomfortable, but you add hard curlers to that and you're laying there like while they're like rinsing and taking out the curlers and it hurts and it stinks. That so right and it didn't look good either <laughs> like at the end um but when i would smell certain beers i would immediately be like perm solution i would be like right back in that chair Ugh. with those hard ass curlers being like i hate this and one so one of the things that i did because that's you know perm solution is only applicable to people who have had perms or have like been around people who are getting perms um, so that's a very vivid descriptor, but it's not very relatable. So if I put yes. perm solution 
on yes. a score sheet, whoever was reading it, chances are would be like, I don't know what that means. Even even I don't know what that smells like. So I could take a guess, but what I did was, you know, I, I came home one day and I don't mean this facetiously, Google is your friend. And yeah. I typed in like active compounds in perm solution. And the one of the most active and one of the most odor active compounds is a sulfur base compound. Uh. Uh, and uh, so from okay. there, I was like, okay, so when I smell this and my brain says sulfur or my brain says perm solution, what I'm smelling is sulfur. Yeah. So I, you know, then it was like, okay, learning the difference between H2S and SO. And then it was just like, okay, now I know. So I can also, when I'm smelling something and I think perm solution, I know that this is sulfur. And so I can at least write down sulfur until, you know, and then I, I eventually learned the difference between like H2S, like sulfite and sulfide. Um, but, you know, that that came from that memory of smelling it. And my brain is like, yeah, that's interesting. puts me right there. And so we all have those kinds of autobiographical memories. Yeah. And that can be really great palate training because you can do just what I did is, you know, type, type into Google, like active compounds in, you know, tomato vine, like tomato vine is one of my all-time favorite smells. And that is a very dominant smell in mercine. And so like doing True. hop evaluations, I can smell it. And I'm just like, this is tomato vine. And, you know, that's one of those that like other people are just like, yeah, you're right. Like that is, that smells like tomato vine. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just looking just Googling things like that and figuring, trying to figure out what those compounds are is going to help you translate those autobiographical memories into that common lexicon. So, you know, again, that's, that's an example of something that happens to all of us. We all have autobiographical memories and you can use that to help develop your descriptive vocabulary and help you better hone in on what it is that you're smelling because your brain's giving you a pretty big clue. I was, I was going to say, exactly. This is something your brain is so used to and it clicks immediately because of one reason or another. So yeah, if you can use that to your advantage, like I'm sitting here racking my mind, like the only smell I could think of right now that ties a memory is magnolia because that's a true like we had all these magnolia trees growing up and it reminds mm -hmm. like, every, and I say that only because every time I smell magnolia, I think of the big ass magnolia tree that I fell off of when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> right. See, there you go. But that meets like all of those, that olfactory level. And if I had fallen off memories. that tree, I don't think it would have mattered. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> that was a bad fault too. I was like my, my first big, like, Oh fuck. Yeah. All right. Let's not mess around anymore, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the, that also makes sense just in terms of the autobiographical memories, because like smell and taste really when we're kids, like that's our primary system of yeah. like learning about the world around us. And, you know, like if anybody has had kids, like that's what they say, like you chase them around all the time to be like, please stop putting that in your mouth. Yeah. And like, but that's, you know, you're exploring the world around you and those are the most readily available systems for you. So that is the sense of aroma, those autobiographical memories. It is so powerful. And I encourage you again, when you have those, those things, um, particularly when you're smelling beer, you know, do kind of that legwork to figure out what it is, because chances are you are, I'm, well, you are smelling a component of that beer and that can help you 
communicate that clearly to other people. So then the other thing we have is um, with aroma is our orthonasal and retronasal olfaction. And I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. It's, it's pretty basic. Orthonasal is what you smell when you just breathe in through your nose. Retronasal olfaction is what happens when you actually take a sip of beer and it, like as soon as that beer passes into your mouth, it's already changed. Your mouth has already changed it. Yeah. I know we've talked about this before, Rachel, because you pointed out like, you know, the proteins in your saliva and whatever else you've eaten that day. The time like, of day. <laughs> the time of day. Yeah. yeah. Um, health considerations, you know, like for people who menstruate, like that can change the balance of, you know, of your saliva and how you're perceiving things. So again, it's a lot of this stuff when you start talking about it is like, we've all just agreed to certain artifices in, in life because it's, it's all going to be so different for everybody, but everybody's just like, okay, yeah, this is apple. Yeah. What I, <laughs> what I taste that. <laughs> is not going to be what you taste, but we're just going to say like, look at this thing, which is amazing. This is an apple. That you, that and we, we say this tastes that. like apple. Right. You know, like to a certain point, like there's obviously anomalies, but like after learning about all this stuff, you're like, why do we even test people on sensory? It's so arbitrary taste. But that's kind of the next thing to talk about here. So when we're talking about taste in this sense, we're talking about sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. And it's interesting because I've been reading a lot lately about what has to happen before you can consider something a, a taste. So like umami was something that was discovered in the 1920s or not discovered, but uh, you know, explained in the 1920s in Japan, and it really didn't catch on until like probably the late 1990s in the United States, at least. Yeah. But like, oh, this is an established taste, and I forgot exactly what what criteria needs to be met. But I, I know I've heard people say like carbonation, calcium, fat. Fat is a big one on whether or not that's a taste, and fat really breaks down into fatty acids, and so it's like, well, do we have dedicated receptors really is a big part of whether something can be considered a taste or not. The I, I know we've talked about sweetness and everybody knows how much I love talking about bitterness. Uh, so we won't spend too much time on our, on our taste sense, um, except I will say that um, we referenced this in our GOSA episode about escarpment labs saying that most of what we know from brewing is uh, English translations of German texts, old like 18th, 19th century German texts, and then some guy's PhD thesis from the 70s. Yeah. So when we talk about the tongue map, that is one of those things that was a misinterpretation of German into English by this gentleman named um, Edwin Boring. Uh, and he- Boring is my mom's family name. Oh, well, maybe it's your feelings. Lots of boris. Yep, it's totally. I, I even had <laughs> Uncle Ed. Okay. Yeah, it okay. wasn't him, though. It wasn't the plot him. Thickens. But, he, but it was probably named after the guy, the asshole right. who fucked this up, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the tongue map, you know, that all of us grew up with, like sweet in the front of your tongue, bitter in the back of your tongue. That was a mistranslation from a German text. And the, the gentleman, uh, the German gentleman, was saying that it 
appeared that there were more concentrations of certain taste buds in different parts of your tongue. And that was mistranslated and put into this book by this gentleman who um, I guess was the only guy around who could read German. And <laughs> it's, you know, and that's so. like, <laughs> like, like you've said, Rachel, like science is always evolving. Our understanding is getting better. So I'm not trying to demonize anyone or be like, look at this stupid guy. No. Up for all of us because it's it just funny because all it took is one white guy to say, here it is. And everyone's like, cool, let's get on board. Right. Right. And so this gentleman wrote tons of books. He became known for talking, for um, writing compendiums of history of psychology. But the the tongue map, that's myth. The, you know, we can taste all of the tastes all over our tongue. Um, and so the other thing that I will dispel right now is this concept of the super taster. Yes. It doesn't mean what people think it means when we're talking about super taster and that term has actually fallen out of favor in sensory science. So when I was taking my UC Davis course, I um, mistakenly put something about super tasters in one of my homework assignments and received feedback on we don't say super taster. But that concept arose from people whether somebody was a taster or non-taster when it came to this specific bitter compound. And I know in our bitterness episode, we talked about that. So you can go read or go listen to learn more about, you know, like the, the, the prop paper you can get, or pardon me, the pro paper you can get to taste whether or not, to, or to see whether or not you're a bitter taster. It says one very specific compound. And so what they noticed was some people are non-tasters some people are tasters and then some people had a like a huge reaction to this so it wasn't just like bitter it was the most bitter thing and those people got dubbed super tasters in this very very narrow sense of there's this one bitterness compound that you appear to be more sensitive to than other people and that there has been other research on whether people who are more sensitive to this one bitter compound are, you know, do they have a a higher concentration of taste buds or um, are they more sensitive to other things? And they've like, the jury is still out on that, on whether like, if you're a super taster, quote unquote, if you are, if you have some sort of enhanced kind of spidey sense when it comes to tasting things, um, but I like I've seen people call themselves super tasters or refer to other people as super tasters. And that's not it's not what I think most people think of, which is like you're highly sensitive and you can taste everything so everything. much better than everybody else. Like that's not the science is still out on that. And the term super taster specifically relates to this one chemical compound for bitterness. I just got to believe if you were a super taster the sense of you could taste everything to the fullest you probably wouldn't have that many things that you liked exactly so like you probably wouldn't like beer at all right maybe maybe like a light lager like i don't know like the 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 dullest flavor beer you could get right exactly and that's um that is something that they found with non-tasters is they typically again non-tasters in the term of this one specific bitter compound that they tend to like things with more amped up 
flavor. So, you know, they like really hot sauce um, and, you know, they, it takes like more bitterness for them to be like, oh, this is bitter. So you just kind of amp everything up, which, you know, makes sense. Like if yeah. you can't, if you can't hear something, you turn the volume up, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so then the other thing we'll talk about is the, your trigeminal sense. And so this is where there can be some confusion, I think, with whether something is a taste or if it's, if you, if, if it's your trigeminal sense. So these are going to be common chemical senses that are responsive to irritants or pain stimuli. And so a, our trigeminal sense will warn us of toxic concentrations at high levels, but there is, and one of the books I read called it like medium danger, right? So there are uh, some trigeminal senses, like our bodies are wired to warn us that something's a hazard, um, but as humans, we still consume some of these hazards. So spicy chili heat, capsaicin, yeah. that's part of our trigeminal sense. Um, horseradish, wasabi, tannins, menthol, carbon dioxide, those are all part of our trigeminal senses. And so particularly with things like chili heat or wasabi or horseradish, like that makes sense. Like, you know, your body is just like, what are you doing? But you're like, hee, 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 like hurts so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as, as humans, it's like, why are we doing something that we know harms us? And it's because like we derive a certain amount of pleasure from that. And I will also say, um, I did something real dumb, I guess like a year and a half ago, not understanding the difference between trigeminal sense and like your sense of taste. And once I like, it, one day I was just like, oh yeah, duh, no wonder that didn't work the way that it thought that I thought it would. But I was like, well, if you hold your nose, right? So you don't have any retronasal, um, and you taste something, and we've done this before with, you know, jelly beans or, or ginger yeah. candies or whatever. You hold your nose and you can feel like you can taste the sweetness or the, you know, the, the bitterness or whatever. And then when you release your nose, that's the retronasal. And then you can actually get the aroma and what we think of as flavor. So I was like, I wonder what happens if I hold my nose and put like some last dab hot sauce on my tongue. Will it not be spicy? <laughs> and like even now, I like I'm I'm telling all of you because we're 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 in the nest. We're a safe right? space. Yeah, we're, we're a safe a, space. We're a safe space. We're in the nest, and I can share these things with all of Will you. Will it not be spicy? And no, it, it absolutely was just as spicy as that's your trigeminal sense and not your sense of taste. Um, but I mean, at least when I release my nose, I like it though. Oh, now I can get all these retro nasal flavors. Um, now that I'm crying because it's so hot. Um, but yeah, that was just a real dumb way that I learned the difference between that. And then the last thing we'll talk about, um, or like, you know, perception wise is mouthfeel. So mouthfeel is that tactile sensation. So that's where that sense of touch is going to come in. And mouthfeel for beer has five main components. That's going to be body, carbonation, warmth, creaminess, and astringency. So you can see with mouthfeel, we're getting a lot of those uh, trigeminal senses is where that tactile sensation is coming in. 
with that. So one thing just as a good beer judging practice, for every single beer you evaluate, you will always be able to evaluate the body and the carbonation. Every single yes. beer, no matter what, there's going to yep. be body, there's going to be carbonation, or there's not going to be body and there's not going to be carbonation. And those are still perceptions. Uh, but, you know, like warmth, creaminess, astringency, it depends on the yep. style. Uh, so then we've got our thresholds. And when we're talking about the thresholds, this is really where we've got, um, this is where the palate training comes in, right? So with thresholds, the a sensory threshold is the level of strength that a stimulus has to reach before we can detect it. And whether we can detect something or not depends, it depends on the day. Sometimes it depends on um, adaptation. Uh, but the two main thresholds that we're concerned about with sensory, with palate training are the detection threshold and the recognition threshold. So the detection threshold is when a smell creates a signal, right? So you're like, what's that smell? That means that that stimulus has like reached a level where you can actually figure out that like I'm smelling something. Uh, and then our recognition threshold is when you recognize the smell. So that's when you can both detect it and recognize it. So you can be like, what's that smell? And it's like, oh, that's lemons. And so your, our thresholds, that's really where the palate training is coming into play. And then the other thing, and I know Rachel's got a story about this, is mixtures. And so um, as a brief side note for everyone, if you can't tell, I can talk about this kind of stuff all day long. So we're actually going to turn this into a two-part episode. So our next episode is going to be on actually things you can do to help train your palate. Uh, so this one's just going to be kind of introducing and laying all the groundwork for us. But mixtures, when we're talking about mixtures, the more complex something is, the more it becomes a homogenous smell. So think about when you're baking cookies or you walked into a house where somebody's just baked cookies. You say, oh, yum, it smells like fresh baked cookies in here. You're not like, oh, yum, it smells like flour and sugar and vanilla and eggs and baking soda and whatever else, whatever else goes into cookies, right? You don't say that. You say it smells like cookies. And the reason for that being is that the, the more experience that you have in tasting things and identifying characteristics, the more your brain associates those as like a synthetic a object. Whole. So yeah. yeah, everything comes together. And when mixtures are familiar, the brain treats them as unique objects rather than components. Well, it's fair too, because you walk in, you don't smell flour. You smell right. cookies. Right, exactly. And so mixtures no. of more than four compounds are perceived to be less complex than mixtures with fewer compounds. And the reason why this is important with beer is because our intensity is less than the sum of its intensity in an unmixed component. So when we're talking about mixtures, where that comes into play is because I know when I was first reading this, and this was also in the neuroanalogy book, it said, um, you know, you really can't distinguish more than three or four characteristics in, in anything, like even expert judges, if you, you know, if you hand me a beer and you're like, what do you, what do you smell? What do you perceive? Um, you're really going to get like three or four main hits from it. 
And when I was reading this, I was like, yeah, but I know I write these beautiful score sheets and these really <laughs> nice descriptions of things. And I like, I know I've met some people who are full of shit, but like, I don't think I'm full of shit. So how, like, how do you reconcile those two things? And when it comes to judges and experts being able to distinguish several properties, one, we have those other sensory features that are informing our perceptions. So, you know, mouthfeel, body carbonation, alcohol, warmth, color, all of those things uh, inform what it is that we're looking at. So I've got a Goza right here next to me. I'm not going to look at that and say, oh, look at that stout, right? So our, already yeah. in my mind, I've just kind of like knocked out some beer styles that this more than likely is not. And then when we have more experience, the like the connections between our neurons change with experience so that in when you're doing more discrimination activity so things like evaluating beer that's going to lead to long-lasting increases in subsequent discrimination activity so what that means is you know being able to describe beer well a big big part of it comes from experience and so if you give me a gosa in my brain it's already kicked on and said these are all the things that you should expect to get in a GOSA. And so a lot of what you're writing is this is, you know, this is based on my experience. This is what I would expect, which is also why you can say there's not enough salinity in this GOSA because you're basing it on every GOSA you've ever tasted and, you know, making your judgment call that way. So it's, it's not that we're all full of shit. If somebody can describe a lot of things is that we're using other components besides our sense of smell to describe things and to describe what we think we're tasting. We're actually kind of combining all of our experience and our taste into that glass and kind of um, projecting. So I did the assignment. I understood the assignment. <laughs> right. Yes. And I remember when I read in the, in the neuroanalogy about um, the mixtures and like even experts can really only pick out three things. Yeah. I texted Rachel to let her know. Because I understood the assignment, Bill. All right. <laughs> so, Cause so now I got to tell a story and I know, I think we've told it another episode, but Jen and I are taking the virtual Aroxa class with Bill led by Bill Simpson. And he gives us these beers or no, he, no, we already have the beers. Like he's yeah. like, all right, here, taste your normal beer. There's no spike, like whatever beer you're drinking. And then, you know, write down all the compounds that you are perceiving. So like a normal person who understands the assignment <laughs> writes down three compounds that I can actually smell or taste, not using my bias of already knowing about beer styles to fly about what other things I might be tasting. <laughs> so I picked three compounds because that's what I can truly taste and smell. Uh, you know, one, I know I'm, I'm blind. I'm not blind. I don't think I'm blind to acetylhaldehyde because at a certain threshold, I can, I can detect it. But I knew it was my weak one. I don't even think I put it in there. Anyways, so we're taking this virtual class and everyone submits how many like compounds they can smell. And I'm like the only one to submit three. Everyone else is more than three. And he like lectures me virtually, like not like through the whole class, but singles me out in his toad. And he's like, you're telling me that all these things go into this beer and all you could do is perceive three compounds. Really? 
really? He says it's just like that. And I'm like, yeah, really? At least it's like virtual. So like, I'm not in the classroom being like, I'm sorry, Master right. please don't hurt me. Yeah. And then Jade, Jade a couple, like a couple weeks ago is like, guess what I read? I was like, ha ha, I am the expert. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm real. Right. You know, I have the real, I'll, I'll keep it straight. Yes. Yeah, so on that, um, with Rachel keeping yeah. it real and straight and, um, thank you for allowing me just talk at you and oh, it's good. It's what I need it. It's what I need on, it. um, on just a little bit about how our brain, what's going on in our brain when we are evaluating beer. So, like I said, we'll make this a cheap harder and for the next episode, we'll talk more about palate training, what that means, um, some of our favorite ways to do palate training. And then one, again, one of my favorite things that I've learned recently um, is biases in sensory and why it's important that like, you don't need to be watching TV or like I, why you should be quiet when you're evaluating beer. Of course I was, if I wasn't going to be in the beer industry at one point, I was also enrolled in a library information sciences master's program so I could well, be a librarian. Well, that sounds so boring. Well, you know, it was that or <laughs> mortuary school because when I say I like a quiet work environment, fucking mean it. <laughs> and one of my biggest pet peeves is particularly when judging or evaluating beer and somebody's like, oh, yeah, 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 keep it, keep it Yes. So we'll talk about biases and sensory because that one in particular plays a very big role in influencing what we do. So thank you everyone for listening and hope, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, you can find us on social media at False Bottom Girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can email us at falsebottomgirls.com and you can visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. So thank you, Rachel. You're thank welcome. You I don't have a pithy way to end this three compounds is enough this has been false bottom girls and we make the brewing world go round